important network in general. How even outside of professional help, I'm a peer. I'm someone who identifies with a person who has a serious mental illness, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And as a peer, as much as it's important to access professional help, it's also important for me to support those around me and to know that whether it's my friends, whether it's my family, who may not be in a position to access professional help, it's important for me to offer them help and to encourage them. So I want us to be mindful of picking up these skills, picking up these tools to not only support ourselves, but to support those around us. And so without ado, I'm actually going to give some time to share a personal story from the mother of Rock Gibbons, and she's going to come up and tell us a little bit of why she believes that this event is important. Thank you. I um I I first want to thank my husband, Dan Gibbons, um, for his love and for his love for me, for his love for our children, for his love for Ross, that allows us to to move this movement forward. Begin to heal the hurt. You know, you you your children come to you. We have two sons, Ross. We have a son, Scott. Your children come to you as good and perfect gifts from God, and you and you you have dreams. You have dreams with them. And hopes when you love them beyond words. You have fears every day. When when Ross was in his teen years, and Scott were in their early teen years, it was during the time when young black males, Trayvon Martin, so many young black males were being shot down and killed. And I remember my biggest fear was that that my boys would be stopped one day and that that they would be handcuffed for making a wrong turn or for whatever reason. And so our conversations in their teenage years when they were students at North Central, when they were children at, at Orchard School was mainly about being careful about those kinds of things. And we know we, 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 we had great hopes for their future. As been a radiation oncologist, we believe in education. You know, provisions, we were blessed to have it where they, they had opportunities. You read all these stories about other children. Where your child is somewhere, 
no one can tell you where, where they can't wake them up. But you know, you, 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 you put your dreams and your, and your hopes, and then, and then you, you get a phone call. And, and, and I've, I've been thinking all week with this being Black History Month about Langston's huge point, what happens to a dream deferred. And I'm gonna, uh, I, you know, I wanna read a little bit about, I don't have my reading glasses here, but, Dan, can you see what that, what do you need that, that point for me? What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or does it fester like a sore and then run? Does it sink? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? That question, or does it explode? Loss? Grief, trauma, the voices in your head, fear, 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 and now our community of the Roth movement where, where young adults and teenagers and parents gather at our home in a safe place just because they need somebody to talk to. They're losing their children. Many have lost their children in very violent ways. And the pain, I tell you, they're there. I, I, I cannot, they're, they're, I cannot think of a word for it like the boss would not walk in the door again. But he will not call my phone and say, Mom, what's for dinner? So, this, so, so you know, we, we, we have this, 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 you know, historical burden as African Americans and black people. We have a historical burden when we worry about our children with a historical burden. And we, we try to do better. And now we find that there's new burdens that our children are, are are, are, are dying in the streets and that drugs are killing them. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's, it, 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 life can be stress and life and pain and hurt will overwhelm you and at moments you will, you can and you will Explode. Explode. Because all your dreams, when you lose a child and loved ones, your, your, your dreams, those dreams are gone. So what happens to a dream deferred? But it dies. Oftentimes we explode and we get sick. I I now know 
that because of loss and grief, and not just my son, not just the loss of loss, but all that I now know, has made me sick. That the thoughts that run through my mind, and the things I think about, and the voices that I hear are frightening. I'm talking about the voices of fear that, that speak inside of me. That talk to me every day. That tells me to stop, to give up. And what, and what reason is there? What are you doing Christmas time? And, and I mean, you know, what, 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 do, do you know all the pictures, all the childhood, all the things, all the things. So I'm, I'm here saying, I know that that life can hurt. But we, but we have to take all these experiences and learn the lessons so that we can reach out and help to heal others. And that is, that is why I am here. And sometimes I can even hear Walter's voice say, yes, mama, <laughs> that's what I want you to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was so powerful. And that story is not unlike many stories that exist in Indianapolis, in Indiana, all across the country, whether it be suicide, whether it be overdose, whether it be gun violence, we are losing our young people at petrifying rates. Um, Indiana leads the nation in that second for um, ages 15 to 24 in suicidal ideations and also um, attempts on suicide as well. And that is scary living in Marion County where the rates are even more, are, are even higher. So I want us to take some time to, uh, to think about that and think about what we can do. So moving forward, we have Mr. Kenneth Cox. And Kenneth, Mr. Kenneth Cox is an African-American male, um, licensed mental health counselor who is dedicated and committed to helping the African-American community. And he also supports our LGBTQ population, which is extremely underserved and experienced a lot of discrimination and a lot of ostracism, whether it be uh, through societal pressure and through our health system. So I'm very, very excited and very, very grateful that he reached out and that he's here. And he's going to give a few words on why he believes that this is uh, that this event is important, and as a, from the perspective as a clinician, what he sees that we need. So this was very uh, quickly thrown together um, at the last minute, but I'm so happy that it happened that way because it provides an opportunity for me to just reach out to the community and, uh, and give a voice um, as a black and as a black uh, clinician. So what does it mean to be a black uh, clinician, a black therapist? I am a licensed mental health counselor. Uh, I work as a trauma-focused therapist. I also am a clinical art therapist, and I also concentrate in addictions work, but primarily trauma is my focus because 
because there is not one of us in this room or in this community uh, that has escaped experiencing trauma in their lives. Um, I also do couple counseling, and the trauma that we incur in our marriages and our relationships then carry on into our uh, children and into our community. So really addressing trauma, especially and particularly within the black community, is something that's very important to me. I uh, haven't experienced my own trauma as a, as a young person, and even as an adult, um, just the myth that needs to be debunked, if I may say that, is uh, that black people don't need therapy, you know? That uh, black people don't need to air their business out in the street. Um, we're way beyond that now, uh, just due to the death rates we have in our young community alone, uh, which Sabrina mentioned. Uh, we, we need help, and we deserve it. We have earned the right to have help. Um, Dr. DeGruy Joy Leary, or Joy DeGruy Leary is one of my heroes. And her dissertation work and her seminal work that she tours throughout the country and has written books is an intergenerational trauma. So what she does is she addresses trauma going back to the days of slavery and how with unhealed trauma from those days has been passed down generation to generation to generation, tied with that concept that there's no one that needs to know our business. So what has that done? That has fostered a false belief system that we don't deserve to get the help that everyone else does. It's just not true. Um, as a uh, trauma-focused therapist, I really try to pinpoint uh, any trauma that surfaces, and then it's important to work through that trauma so that one can heal. And just to give you kind of a brief description of what trauma looks like in the brain, so there are two types of trauma. Uh, Judith Herman was the one who coined the idea of chronic PTSD, which means it's a series of events that are experienced over and over again, then building up trauma upon trauma. So addressing each one of those traumas, processing it through the brain, which trauma memories are stored very differently in the brain than a regular memory. Uh, it's kind of like a stuck photograph or stuck image in our minds and our bodies. So working through that trauma then really allows for us to begin the healing process. So um, I won't take up too much more of your time, but um, I, I do practice um, in a uh, group practice called Counseling at the Greenhouse. We are at uh, 447 East 38th Street, and we are accepting new clients. Um, eventually, I will be forming some trauma-focused groups uh, this spring, as well as some heart therapeutic groups as well uh, to deal with trauma and trauma symptoms. Um, so if anyone has any questions, I'm sitting right here at this table, the Ask Therapist table. If you have any questions at all, just feel free to stop by and ask. And uh, again, it's Kevin Cox, and I thank you for your time. Thank you. Um, I am going to go ahead and introduce our next speaker, Dr. Valerie McCray. Now, the worst thing that can happen to a speaker is that you get someone who invites you that knows all about it already. So Bree sent me this, this list of uh, 
things that she wanted me to talk about. Um, and it's pretty intense. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's asking me to do a lot here because she wanted me to talk about historical um, trauma. Uh, but we can't talk about historical trauma unless we talk about the other forms of trauma as well. So when I think about historical trauma, um, let me just give you an example. I remember sitting with my son when he was, oh, he was still in a high chair. And I was feeding my son, and I all of a sudden I got this really, really intense feeling of joy that I'm feeding my son. It's like, oh my God, I've got food to feed my son, right? And uh, tears were coming. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, I can feed my son. And I thought, wait a minute, I have never been hungry in this lifetime. Where is that coming from? I come from a family of food hoarders, so even when I'm broke, I got food. So I don't know where that was coming from, right? I think sometimes we store memories in our DNA that we don't even know are there and that we're reacting to uh, without even knowing that we're reacting to that. So it's really quite interesting. Another thing um, that I can remember, a friend of mine, we decided to go, this was in Ann Arbor, and we decided to go hiking in the woods like everybody else. Right? We see white girls going hiking all the time, people going hiking in the woods. So Manita and I, two sisters, we decided to go hiking in the woods. And we're walking and all of a sudden we hear this terrible noise. Terrible noise. And it sounded like a monster or something. All I know is I was running, she was running, and I felt myself being transported. I felt like I was running in the south, running for my life. And what I, we finally stopped and saw were two little bitty dogs dragging a chain. But for us, it felt like I was a slave running for my life. And I don't know where that memory came from, but I did not go walking in the woods like that since. Because it brought back something that I must be in my DNA somewhere, some memory somewhere. And we're carrying these historical traumas with us every day. Right, so somehow or the other, I don't know if because we watch Roots or what, but that was so real. It was so real. It's hard to, to even describe how real that was. But some of the trauma that shaped my life was between 1955 and 1968. And no, I'm not as old as being around in 1955, but I remember my parents talking about the story of Emmett Till and his death, and that was still their conversation when I was a little girl. It was it was still an ongoing conversation. And then Megger Edwards, uh, when he was killed, I remember being three or four years old when that happened. I remember the conversations. I remember my parents being totally fixated on whatever the situation was. Um, and I remember, like it was yesterday, the mur murder of JFK. Um, and I remember the three civil rights leaders being killed in Mississippi. 
I remember the conversations with my parents playing bid whist and stopped for a minute to talk about the assassination of Martin Luther King, I mean of Malcolm X, and then the assassination in 1968 of Martin Luther King. And also, in there, the same year, I think we lost Bobby Kennedy as well. So if we start talking about trauma, let's go back and start. If we talk about historical trauma, our trauma goes back to slave, slavery. I think it goes back even further. But one of the things about the slave trade, 60 million people were captured. However, only 12.5 actually survived long enough to be transported in the Middle Passage. When you go to Ghana, the size of the room that they stayed in is about the, the sections about as big as a stage, where they would put 200 people at times. The floors are steel feces. I mean, it's just impacted feces. Um, so when you go through, you can feel all of that. I'm wondering how much of that those members we carry in our DNA as well. And only 10.7 survived the Middle Passage, and believe it or not, only 388,000 were actually here in the United States. We survived, right? Um, let's, let's go, go, go. Okay. And this is where um, a lot of our trauma is, with the lynchings that happened after the slave trade. So a lot of us still carry that as well. That's part of my historical trauma. And I actually went online and looked up images. Um, and I kind of re-traumatized myself. If you go and look at the real images of the lynchings, it is horrifying. So if you ever want to do it, I decided I have a duty not to do harm. So I made sure I did. I didn't put these on these slides. But if you want to go under gettyimages.com and look under uh, lynching, um, there's 49 pages of just really graphic, ugly stuff. It's, a, it's, a, it's way more. 3,446 3, African Americans and 1,297 whites were lynched between 1882 and 1968. And many of the whites that were lynched were lynched for helping black folks or being anti-lynching. The last lynching in Indiana was in 1930, but the last lynching in the United States was a 19-year-old named Michael Donald in 1981. This is not so far in our past, right? If we go forward, let's give some homage to this young man who lost his life. The good thing about this case, I guess, is that it was the first white man that was um, executed was for this case in 1997. Uh, this was one time that was actually, um, Jesse Jackson had a lot to do with that. So we've, we've, come, we've come a little ways, but it was only a short amount of time. Just recently, they built the Memorial Museum 
in Alabama. Um, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's these bars hanging that symbolize, and it looks a lot like the mood of people hanging from trees. You have to go see it. What I'm hoping, and what they're hoping, is that the memorial will help to start healing some of this, some of this that's happening. Then I want to move towards another type of trauma that, that's in our memory as well. And it kind of is, I think, it goes a long way of, uh, far, as far as our mistrust of the medical system. And that's the Tuskegee uh, syphilis trial. You guys are aware of that? Uh, that study uh, allowed men to be infected with syphilis, syphilis for 40 years. That's years after they had a penicillin cure for syphilis. Because of that, uh, if you want to go further, yeah. And this sister right here helped the whole 40 years. Right? That person, because sometimes it happens, that person helps, that black person sometimes helps to keep us in that negativity, helps to keep us in our demise, right? It's really interesting how that happens. But this is the way we used to get vaccine, vaccinations when we were kids, real little. It changed. It's like getting a vaccination with a uh, uh, with an AK-47, right? And then the AIDS epidemic. Supposedly, they found out that the AIDS came from uh, chimpanzees, right? It sort of passed down DNA. But because of the Tuskegee situation and other situations, a lot of black folks, we still don't believe that. It's like, no, they did something. Something happened. They just infected a bunch of African people. But what I want to tell you now is that trauma, that was historical trauma, but the trauma we experience every day actually sets up in our bodies to the point that it's actually causing our health to be bad. It's causing a lot of negativity. Um, it affects brain development. It affects our immune system our hormonal systems, and how our DNA is read and transcribed. High exposure to trauma correlates with triple the lifetime uh, risk of heart disease and lung cancer. And we have a 20-year decrease, decrease in life expectancy based on the amount of trauma you're exposed to as a child. And then there's trauma that's added along the way. I don't know if you're familiar with the ACE study, but they're going to probably give the ACE study later. Um, but I can go ahead and run through it with you real quick. The ACE study is adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and they just listed like 10 things. Either you say yes or no to that. And most people are going to score something, right? Score one, 48% score something. So did you have a parent or uh, someone in your household that swore at you, insulted you, put you down, humiliated you? Uh, did a parent or another adult in a household grab you, hit you, slap you? 
uh, hit you hard, made marks, or injured you? Number three, did the adult or person at least five years or older ever touch or fondle you or had intercourse with you? So there's some sexual things as well, sexual trauma. Uh, did you feel neglected and unloved uh, where your family didn't support each other? Did you ever feel like you didn't have enough to eat, had uh, dirty clothes, had to wear their dirty clothes to school? Your parents were too drunk or too high to take care of you or take you to the doctor when you needed to go? Were your parents ever separated or divorced? Was your mother and father, mother or stepmother ever kicked, kicked, pushed? It sort of deals with domestic violence, threatened. Did you live with someone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or used street drugs? A lot of our kids are growing up with that issue in the household. Was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did the household member ever commit suicide, uh, attempt suicide? Or did a household member ever go to prison? And those series of questions are called your ACE score. And what they're finding is that with your ACE score, there is a relationship between how many of those you check out off and how well your how your well-being is later on. And so that's connected with your health, it's connected with your Longevity is connected with drug use, it's connected with smoking, it's connected to so many things, right? That people just don't realize just how important it is. Let me see. But I want to talk about another type of drama, I mean uh, trauma, that happens in our community called intergenerational trauma. Anybody familiar with that concept? I think this is where historical trauma we can't do a lot about. We can go back and look, right? And go by and look, process it, think about it. But the intergenerational trauma, what ways do we transmit, transmit poverty, servitude, and violence? Right? Which ways do we transmit this? And sometimes it's so subtle. For example, the way we talk to our daughters. I can remember distinctly hiding the fact that I was starting my period when I was younger. Because I knew my mother hadn't talked to me about it and I also knew that she would be traumatized by me starting my period. Sure enough, she found out and she cried. So what did she pass on? What happened in her generation that she passed on this feeling about womanhood this sort of negative feeling about womanhood or going into my own, where did she get that from? Why was it passed down? Are we continuing to pass it down? Men in the family, are we continuing to pass down? It's okay not to be present in the home. It's okay to be in this, these, these um, gangs and this, this violent lifestyle. It's okay not to send money or talk to your kid. What do we transport? It, it's okay to tell your kid you're nothing and you're not going to ever be anything, right? These are, these are ways of being that we've passed down from generation to generation that we can change. Does that make sense? Things that keep us down year after year, thought after thought. How do we transmit detrimental ideas, 
exposure to danger. You know, most women, one of the problems they have about being raped or uh, especially in the household by, by a boyfriend, a mother's boyfriend or whatever, is the mother didn't believe them or the mother didn't stand in for them or the mother put them in this dangerous situation. And if you talk to the mother, they get the same thing happen to them. It's passed on from generation to generation. So some women, when they've been violated, will be, become overprotective. And some will turn the other way and let it happen to their very own daughters. It happens, right? Or we pass down fear and overprotection or overcompensation. We will raise our daughters and love our sons. So a lot of the young men from generation from generation are being, they're not stepping up to the plate because we're, we're holding them too close because we know that they could go out and get shot at any time. Stop pulling by the police, get shot, something's going to happen. So we're overcompensating in so many ways. So that's a problem as well. I want to talk about something else about, let, let's, this. This right here is a sign on 38th Street off of Lafayette Square. It says two absences per month, less likely to graduate, right? right. It's on 38th Street. I think it's several other places in the city. So they know there's a correlation between Missing school and graduating. Does that make sense? So why do we let our kids get thrown out of school like it's nothing? It's okay to suspend our kids from school every day. There's little bitty kids being suspended from school. So we know they're not going to graduate if they miss school. Not only that, because of the trauma they've experienced, they're not going to show up in school the way normal kids show up in school. They're going to be look like ADHD. They're going to be all over the place, difficult to handle sometimes. But the very worst thing we can do is to send them home. Once you send them home, they come back with anxiety because they have missed so much of school. Think about how you feel when you come to a meeting late. You don't ask any questions, you're paranoid, you're worried that, okay, can I ask, can I ask a question? Have they already asked that? Is somebody gonna call me out about being late? What have I missed? When we're late, there's a sense of anxiety for missing that meeting, but yet still, we let them send our kids home. So those kids have to come back to school not knowing what their classmates have done, and lo and behold, they do something else and they go home, right? I met, um, this was in Georgia, I was bugging one of the inmates because I work in prisons. I kind of work in the, in the trenches. So I was bugging an inmate in Georgia about going to school and he was saying, Dr. McCray, why are you bugging me about getting my GED? I said, I'm going to keep bugging you until you go get this GED. And he's just, you know, and you can see the panic in his face. He said, no, you're going to get this GED and then there's this panic, right? And I said, wait a minute. How many times have you been shot? I don't know, about seven, eight, I don't know. Like I, I still got a couple things to do or something like that. You know, okay. So let me ask you a question. How many people have you shot? 
Well, what they said was, well, what, what happened was, what they said was, they never really tell you, you know, at that point, uh, what they said was. But it was several. Several incidences of being shot, being incarcerated, um, that sort of thing. But yet and still, I said, wait a minute, you've been shot all these times, all you've been shooting people, you've been in and out of jail, you all this, but yet still you don't want to go to school, so you're afraid to go to school? And he said, yeah. That fear of being in the classroom and being asked a question that they don't know is stronger than the fear of being shot out in the streets. Does that make sense? But yet still we send our kids home away from school where they don't know the answers coming in. Does that make sense? There's things we can do about that, that we can get political about that. Stop the process of sending our kids home from school, especially when they're younger, because we're re-traumatizing our own kids. And then the violence in our community. How much of that has to do with the historical trauma why is it so easy for our men, young men to shoot each other? When I work in prisons, I will tell you this. There are about 20% of the men that, that I work in prison with that I'm like, thank God, somebody caught them, locked them away, and threw away the key. Right? There's another 30% of young men that need a little bit of time to grow up. They need some medical training, they need some skills, but give them five or six years to grow up, maybe a little bit past 30 for some of them, they would do fine. And there's another 50% of men that are locked away in prison right now that could come out right today and be good men and husbands and fathers for their community. They're ready, they're sitting there, but they're locked away. Um, we need to do something about that as well. Um, I run into cases all the time where I have two people beside each other with the exact same sentence. I'll see a back-to-back. -back. Exact same crime in two different outcomes. And I can already tell you who their victim was, how much money they had, if they had a, a private attorney versus a public defender. It's all about the, the Benjamins. It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about the race. It's all about the color of the victim as well. So if you're black and your victim is white, you're going to get a different sentence. And that in today's time is just, and, and I'm not talking about just a little bit of difference. I'm talking about six months and 25 years. I'm not talking about just a difference of just a few months or a few years. I'm talking about six months and 25 years for the exact same crime. Period, all the time. All the time. It's really interesting how that works. Uh, PTSD. Reed talked about it uh, quite a bit, but a lot of our folks we suffer from depression and PTSD. And you don't, you don't even know it, right? For example, 
you might see somebody around you who just won't even put their backs to the door. They got sick where they can see everybody all the time. Crankiness, don't want to go anywhere. Um, will not go to Walmart. Like, I can't go to Walmart. Um, for the kids, jumping all around, can't be still, can't focus. Severe PTSD, you can't concentrate. You have to make lists with everything. Let me know if you hear any symptoms that make sense for you. Think, think back whether or not, is there some trauma back there? What we can change is the violence in our community. We've got a group of people, I work uh, as a psychologist with, uh, psychologist consultant with Stop the Violence organization here. We also have Live Free and several other organizations right now that are working together to find a solution for the violence. And it's, it's really simple. It's very cost effective, for example. Um, $42,000 is what they think it's going to cost to take one person off the streets and give them a job and make sure they have the things they need, as opposed to when they're shot one time, that process costs millions because of the hospitalization, the, the legal stuff, the lawyers, all the things that go into that cost a million dollars for that one incident. Whereas to take that young man and pull him aside and say, hey, brother, we got some things we can do for you. We got a job. We got some training. We got some therapy. We got a lot of stuff. We can we can free you from this. And that's what some of the organizations like Live Free, Stop the Violence, they're all coming together right now, trying to make that happen. So keep an eye on that and please get involved in that. Another thing I wanted to talk about was I still want to talk about the intergenerational the historical and intergenerational trauma, how we pass it down. And one of the things that I want to skip back to is that if we could get past pulling each other down, that crab in the barrel thing, if we as people could, and that's sort of ingrained, that's sort of part of that, that, that whole lynch thing, right? That sort of thing that they did with the colors and you know where you got the house Negroes versus this Negro and that sort of thing. So anytime somebody tries to push themselves up, sometimes we pull each other down. Does that make sense? My whole life I've been living in a metaphor. Right? And that metaphor is high horse. She she thinks you know high horse, right? I'm gonna knock her off her high horse. I've been knocked off my high horse so many times by people that just, you know, won't let you just go. They won't support you. They got something negative to say. We're holding each other down because of the intergenerational trauma we've been through. We're passing it down. We don't trust each other the way we should trust each other. Does that make sense? Or we're divided on issues that we shouldn't be divided on. We're divided on the, uh, LG, uh, BT uh, issues, right? That's crazy. It's crazy because 
there are about 30 different physical differences with a baby when it's born. It's not always just male and female. There's physical differences when they're born. About 30 different things, whether it's chromosome issues, whether it's uh, minimal penis in, uh, issues, whether there's these, you know, there's enlarged or enlarged clitoris uh, issues, there's hermaphrodite issues, and all kind of things that let you know there's a range of sexuality issues that we have to deal with. And when you get old enough, if you get old enough, those things that define you as male or female, they don't even matter anymore. Women start growing beards, men start, you know, I mean, we all start having changes in our bodies. So, but what is consistent, what is consistent is the spirit of that person. So we don't, that's what we need to keep an eye on, it's just the spirit of that person and try to support the spirit of that person. We don't need to be divided on, on issues like that because we've got other issues to deal with. What I think should happen now uh, is they really need someone who understands mental health in the White House. Um, and yeah, for, for several different reasons. For one, because of the historical health issues, and it's happening with everybody, you know, uh, we all have our issues and it all plays out in weird ways. But also, some of the stuff that's going on in the White House should be happening. Does that make sense? So actually, there was a reason for me to talk about the crab in the barrel, the high horse thing, is because I'm really going to throw my hat in the ring for 2020. All right? And I really hope I get your support. It's a very long shot, but um, I've got a lot of people excited about it. And I've got friends that look at me like, oh, but I've got a lot more people excited about it. So I'm excited about it. You've got to give it a shot. Uh, support me how you can, when you can, and I would greatly appreciate it. Any questions? No? Any audience questions? Yeah. Let me, let me go back to the infant stage, right? And it also goes back into the intergenerational thing as well about babies. One of the things that we've passed down from generation to generation is don't pick that baby up. Let that baby cry, right? We are setting up in that baby a state of anxiety that stays there. It totally changes their brain chemistry if you're in a state of anxiety, when you don't attend to a young baby, an infant, right? 
Not only that, it brings up anxieties in a mother. If a mother can't pick up that child, nothing about her uh, physical well-being and mental well-being supports that, to let a baby cry. So now you've got a baby that's insecurely attached, right? And, and so when you get into to attachment theory, it starts there, that intergenerational lie about if you pick a baby up, you'll spoil a baby. For me, it's like putting money in the bank. If you pick that baby up or go to that baby each time it cries very early on, it won't cry like that at age three or four months, four or five months down the line. It won't. It's securely attached. You'll go in a room and it's just playing with its feet or something. If you attend to that baby early on. Then as far as poverty is concerned, the nutrients I think that our kids get are so lacking in the foods. The foods that are processed, over-processed, the things you can buy off the shelf, the macaroni and cheese in a box, all those things play a role as well, just salt and carbs. That's not helping our children either. But poverty in itself is how you name the poverty, right? A lot of times we have to stop wanting what we want or making the children want what they want. It's like we praise children because they might have had on a little Nikes or something. $100 pair of little bitty shoes, this big. They got gold chains on and stuff. It's like, hey, little man, you look good. Instead of praising them for their ABCs or something, right? So a lot of times that poverty state of mind, we've taught our kids that they're nothing unless they have these physical manifestations of what they're wearing, right? That they're not somebody until they have that. And we're, we're, we're guilty on another level, too. I mean, we are, people got to have their Louis Vuitton bags and that sort of thing. I'm not mad at you if you got all that. I'm just saying Louis Vuitton hasn't did anything for us, right? So, so why are we doing that? Why are we giving our money to these entities that are giving nothing back to us when that money could be in a bank? So a lot of times what we want for our kids is not necessarily what they need. So they feel like they're in poverty because they don't have what the other children have. Well, really what they need is your time. Um, my son, I'll give an example that we went to Payless the whole time he was coming up and he finally got on my nerves so bad that I said, okay, we got a $400 to work with, here's the money. And once I handed the money to him at 15 and said, you do it with it how you want to do with it. He was like, uh, mom, where's that, where's that shoe store you took me to, was it Payless? You see, when it was his money, he didn't want to spend it like that. But by that time, he learned, why spend all that? So poverty, it depends on how you look at poverty. Um, but another thing, too, is just the stress of not ever having enough. A living wage is $15 an hour, at least. If you have one child, one, feet, one adult with one child, the living wage is around $27,000. They know that. That living wage is the age, I mean, is, a, is the amount you need to make and not to have to rely on food stamps or, you know, one of those EBT cards or any extra help on the outside. Right? And it costs so much. It's so expensive to be broke. 
so expensive to be broke. So we're, we're passing down that stress as well. So on one hand, no, we don't need the extra stuff. But I'm also saying that I, I feel you when you're feeling the stress of what that's, what that's like to not be able to have enough. I've been there. Um, you know, I'm kind of, you know, it's, I've been there to the point where when I get cold, I get stressed out. Because I've had a couple winters without heat. And thank God there were the two winters that weren't too bad. But I've had a couple winters without heat. And even to this day, I have an electric water heater uh, that cost me three times as much as a gas water heater. Because when I lost my, my uh, heat, I was determined not to have my water be on the gas bill. I wanted to be able to at least hit heat. I wanted to at least heat up my water. So I'm like, I'm never here going to have my ability to heat up my water and my heat all on the same bill. Because citizens' gas agents just like, they, they hurt you, right? Because not only you could pay the $55 bill, but now you've got the reconnect fees, and then you also have a deposit. So now all of a sudden, what a $55 bill was, now it's seven dollars $800. It's expensive to be poor. And then I was working in Georgia for a year, and I don't know how y'all let this happen, but y'all let the citizens' gas take over the water bill too. So now I'm just like stressed about that. Oh no. I got a water heater, but what if I don't have water? You see? All those things are very stressful. Everything costs more money. It's expensive to be poor because everybody's eating off of you. Everybody's earning off of you. Buying your behavior lots, cars that don't work right. You know, it's nothing more stressful than your car running, you know, or not having a car, but a car breaking down all the time. I mean, thank God for those little tire shops, because sometimes you just need one tire. I just need one tire to get me the payday. That's all I need, one tire. You know what I mean? So we've been there. Um, and it is stressful. And then that stress passes down to our children as well. Um, because then they feel like they need to have all those things, and they need to show up a certain kind of way. Instead of rewarding them for being smart, rewarding them for, for a book, or rewarding them for a book they've read, a book report, rewarding them for something else. But instead we're and rewarding them with our time. Well, 
think what I've learned early on in my career is that the person sitting in front of me when you're dealing with the family is not, is not the patient. The patient usually is the mother or the parent. If you work, I worked at uh, juvenile detention and I've also worked at the Logansport Jail. And if you sit in the waiting rooms and you watch the visitation, and you look at the parents coming in, you think, Dad, I see why that kid's here. And matter of fact, I hope the kid gets to stay because they don't need to go home to that, right? Sometimes it's the whole family that's the problem. Um, but the way I deal with a, a mother and a child is that I take that mother in as my client, my name, my main client, without her ever knowing that she's my client. And I'm teaching her how to interact with that kid. And I start with a compliment. I find something to compliment. God, you know what? You got a really smart kid. You you on it. You know, you got this. You can raise, you know, this child, you can raise a, a superstar here. You're already well on your way. Might need a little tweaking here and there. But a lot of times the mothers need more attention than the, than the kid. And so then your focus is on the mother, and that's okay, because if you fix the mother, you fix the kid. Right? And you find that, that mother needs attention because they haven't gotten that attention. I used to take young mothers. Um, and I used to uh, have them build dollhouses, and I would pretend like the dollhouses were for the other little kids. Hey, help me put these dollhouses together for these kids that are coming through. You know, and so they would complain and they would fuss it. But after about a few sessions, they would go right to these dollhouses, and we would talk. It was their chance to be a child because they never have a chance to be a child. It was, they were already meant to be in a mother. And my space allowed them to be a child. And then helped them to kind of grow up with that child, right? But it's all about focusing on what she's doing right and building on that and making sure you don't tear her down while she's trying to build. And it's, it's a difficult process because some of these mamas can be kind of embarrassing with their kids, you know, it's like, oh, come on, don't say that. Don't be, you know, uh, and when the kid gets up, don't touch that, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't do that, sit, sit your little butt down and all this stuff, you know, that's why they, they talk and you say, oh, look how curious he is. Yeah, come here, let me hold that, here, hold this, you, you don't want, you won't break it, here, hold it for me. Now give it back, <laughs> you know, but, but show them that kid needs to touch things. Let him touch it. Give it back. You know, they don't give it back. But teach a parent how to parent. Yeah. They, the mothers need so much attention, yeah. It varies, and it's going to be different depending on whether it's military, depending on whether someone's shot out in the, differently in the street. But you're going to have the you're going to have some of the things are sort of universal, the nightmares, um, the 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 sort of what are the symptoms of PTSD? And there are some some symptoms you don't need to have all of them, but there are some symptoms that are sort of the icons or sort of the the flag symptoms like the nightmares, uh, flashbacks, not being able to uh, go certain places, avoiding certain places, uh, not being able to talk about some of the issues, panic attacks, not being able to concentrate. Uh, sometimes it's 
more volatile, more depressed. And it can go into psychosis as well. You can be so depressed and so anxious because PTSD is just a, a combination of anxiety, depression, anger, and fear all wrapped together. And they call it one thing, PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome or d disorder. But it's actually a, a bunch of stuff together that they noticed that during the after Vietnam or whatever, people were having the same symptoms. But what they fail to do is sometimes they will attend to schools like Calabine or whatever, but if our kids uh, see their brother or something shot in the streets, they don't get anything. They're just expected to go to school next week like it's nothing. They go to funeral after funeral like it's nothing. Without anyone taking them and sort of treating them for their trauma. And so those kids can't pay attention in school. They can't sit there. It's traumatizing for a kid, for a mother, to be on a crack high for three or four days and don't come home because they don't know what happened to that mother in that three or four days. Is she coming home? Are we going to eat? So that's traumatizing as well. And then when they snatch that kid out of the home and send them to um, DCS, we added another layer of trauma. We, we're adding a system layer of trauma. So we've got acute trauma already. You know, if somebody got shot, then we've got chronic trauma because you, you, somebody's got shot, the bills aren't getting paid, mom was crying, or this happening. And then don't let it be complex trauma. And complex trauma is when you think you're safe with your, you should be safe with your mom, but she's letting men come in. You let, so you're getting hurt by the people that should be protecting you. That's a different type of trauma. And then on top of that, you got the system that comes in and snatches you away from that, that household. You don't know these people. And most kids would rather be home with an abuser than to be somewhere else with people that don't care at all or don't even know who they are. So then that's complicated as well. So then you got system trauma, and you got the intergenerational trauma, and then you got the historical trauma. As black folks and Latino folks and uh, LGBT folks, we got layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of trauma. And trying to unpeel that onion is kind of difficult at times. But it can be done. It can be done. Yeah, so when I look at a lot of this stuff, it seems like um, it's been done to us on purpose and systematically. A lot of it, the government has you know, played a role in it, um, which is why you're running, right, to try and change some of those systems that are in place. So, um, one thing that I, I know a lot with this last election, I want you to talk a little bit um, and explain to me, like, you know, why do people in our community, so many of us, don't think that we should vote? Don't think that it, it, it matters. And then how do we um, like how do we talk to how do I talk to people and explain to them you know why it matters and get them to actually care because I you know it's something I've been struggling with for a while. I'm hoping. I think the reason why people haven't cared is because there's no one who's sort of in the trenches or some there's no one who who knows what it feels like to not be able to uh, make ends meet. You know, there's no one in the White House that knows how stressful it is 
uh, to get an, even an Aldi's line and have to put something back because you don't quite have enough or have to decide on the Oats instead of the Cheerios because, you know, it's just, hey, go generic or go home, you know. Uh, uh, there is this belief that people don't matter. And, and one of the things, too, is that we're so dis, disenfranchised. I think that it starts with the schools as well. I don't know if it helped us to send our kids, bus our kids way out somewhere. Um, our kids lose an hour standing on the bus. They're out there earlier. Uh, the parents can't get out there. So they're, they're missing an hour's time uh, sitting on the bus stop. The parents can't get way out to these schools. And have you noticed that they, change, they keep changing the curriculum constantly to the point that you don't know what your kids are doing in school? My son, you know, I said, son, you know, uh, Ryan, I, uh, I teach college. I teach at the university. Why is it you think I can't help with your fifth grade math? He said, Mom, this is fifth grade math. You don't know this. I'm like, I know this. I teach college. He gave me that fifth grade math, and I was like, uh, I don't know this. <laughs> It, they, they, they change the curriculum so much that people are not, they're disenfranchised in all different types of ways. Um, they're, they're told how to raise their kids, they're told how to do that. How to get them to the vote, they gotta know that they matter. And, and they do matter. And there's so many things that we can change. We could just change and say, don't send my kids home from school. Let's get legislation not to send the kids home from school. Let's start there. You know? I don't know how to get you guys to vote besides just beg. Please, please vote. Every vote is important, even in a red state, if you're, if you're blue. Right? We can turn this state red, I mean blue if you want, if everybody voted. Right? At least change it to purple somewhere in between. But every vote matters. I, I'm hoping we can get everybody out this year. Any other? Any more questions? Thank you. All right. Next, I have Maya Patel from the American Lung uh, Foundation. I want you guys to understand a little bit more about tobacco tobacco cessation, tobacco cessation, uh, specific to mental health. Sometimes don't. Sometimes people don't know the direct correlation of smoking to individuals who are impacted by stress and who also are impacted by mental health issues. But actual tobacco companies prey on individuals who have mental health issues. At different points in our history, um, they even uh, would send coupons to individuals who they knew were impacted by mental health issues because they know that because of stress that they're more likely to use and become addicted. So she's going to give a little bit more information about what the um, Good afternoon, everyone. I am Maya Patel from the American Lung Association. Uh, we work towards uh, tobacco cessation, also uh, work towards policy and advocacy, so we can uh, help our uh, environment get better, help have clean air, and also stop our youth and older uh, populations from starting smoking in the first place. 
Right now, we are working on uh, having a tax, tax increase and an age increase, so uh, we can have uh, direct uh, influence on the youth and uh, help them to not start this bad habit in the first place. We have seen that the big uh, tobacco companies are targeting uh, youth uh, with uh, better um, marketing, uh, marketing advertisement, so uh, we are trying to make it um, better for our youth. Yeah, so if you have time and if you can uh, contact your senator, that would be great. So we can uh, push this tax tax increase and uh, uh, help uh, help people to stop smoking. Like Bree uh, said, uh, smoking is has a direct coalition with mental health. Usually, uh, kids start smoking at a young age if they are stressed or if they have other if they have other family members, peers that are forced by they are pressuring them to start smoking. So uh, we would, we are working on increasing awareness uh, and also uh, providing uh, free satiation classes uh, throughout the state. So there is not and cutting down barriers of uh, uh, if they uh, just cutting down barriers so people can uh, take that first step and then uh, towards stop smoking. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, we have a web website that has all our information on it. Uh, I'm in the back there, so if you have any questions, I'm I'm here to answer those. Next up, we have Natasha Allen from the Veterans uh, the Veterans Administration. What is, what is it? The, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Right. Yes. And, and speaking of veterans, there are a lot of individuals in our community who have been impacted by um, being deployed. Um, whether it be currently, recently, from 2008 all the way back to Vietnam War. I have personally have some friends whose fathers um, were in the Vietnam War who were impacted by post-traumatic stress disorder but was never, never diagnosed and their family suffered. So bringing awareness to the resources that are available to our veterans or any of our members of our family who served in the armed forces um, is extremely important. Thank you, Thank you for that information. My name is, again, my name is Natasha Allen, and I am honored to definitely be here today. So to give you a little information about the Indianapolis, what the Indianapolis Vet Center, which is a part of the Department of Veteran Affairs. But before I say that as well, I'm also a veteran as well. Veterans served in Iraq and Freedom. I wasn't expecting that piece, but uh, I did serve, and I served three years in Prior to that, I will have to also say that I am a daughter of a Vietnam veteran. So, I do remember, um, and my father has just passed due to, uh, I would say maybe a combination of things, but I do believe that being a part of that, uh, that war was part of it. But to, the main thing is, what I get to tell you now is about being part of the Indianapolis Vet Center. I've been with the Indianapolis Vet Center since 2006. For, for the people that are here that may be veterans, show of hands, I have to say I honor you as well for my fellow veterans. So as well as any dependents, any spouses, because I feel like it takes a lot to be here to uh, a veteran at times. So uh, my husband is the spouse. He did not serve in the military. His name is Michael Allen, but uh, you know, we've been married over 14 years. So it's been a, I would say definitely an adjustment. 
hopefully everybody can hear me. It's been an adjustment, but the main thing with the Indianapolis Vet Center, just stick to my script, is with the Indianapolis Vet Center, we're a small facility. We're seven people staff. We started, or we were created back in 1979. Vietnam veterans were looking for something less red tape. They wanted something they could walk into and receive services, or at least have speak to their peers. And so due to that, it started off with 20 facilities. Indiana, Indianapolis happened to be one of the 20. Now we have over 300 throughout the country, 300 facilities. The main thing is providing readjustment counseling services to the veterans at no cost. The cost is the fact that they serve their country. So the only thing we require is a, is a DD-214. And there, when I say that, that is showing, it's kind of like a resume or saying that this person served their country. But even if they do not have that form, that paper, they can still walk into our facility and receive the services. There's no cost, there's no time frame. Again, let me say that, there's no time frame. So there are veterans that have been out for a number of years. There are service members that are still in the military that may decide to leave the military or retire from the military in the next year or so. If they decide to do that, they can still walk into the veteran. If they're active duty, if that service member is a Marine right now and have gone through some challenges or just having some obstacles, they can walk in and receive services. So whether they're looking to receive counseling services or if they're looking to find out what benefits, what am I entitled to? What is out here for me? So the information that has been presented today is a lot of the great information that our clinical social workers that we have um, on staff are able to assist our veterans with, as well as the family members, because we do cater to the family members as well. So again, I would say I'm a big advocate for the Vet Center, a big advocate for mental wellness. I'm happy to be here, and I thank you. So if you have any questions, I am at the back of the table uh, where it says thank you to my women veterans. Thank you. Um, and serve our community in, in a more broad way. 
stuff, if you have any questions, um, our table is right there in the back with the purple um, border. Um, my name is Cher, and it's an honor to be here. because um, the founding member or the founder is um, Dwight Holland, and he's a clinician who also specializes in um, ministry. So um, in addition to the work I do here, I do a lot of advocacy in churches to help churches understand the needs for uh, mental health services, mental health education. And so um, he founded the organization and provides a lot of support um, and employs a lot of African-Americans who are also in social work um, to uh, help our community. So I really, they're near and dear and true to my heart. So next up, I have Donna Ward from, from the Indiana Alzheimer's Disease Association. Thank you. Thank you for being out here. Thank you for being out here. Um, I am Donna at work with the Indiana Alzheimer Disease Center. We are at the IU School of Medicine. And we work under a grant provided by the National Institute of Health. We um, are looking for people that think there might be a problem with their memory. Uh, some of the mildest changes that you're not so sure about. Uh, to those who have issues and uh, even normal we have to compare the normal to the diseased brain um, most of our studies ask that you come in once a year go through some testing go through some question and answer and then that gets compared year to year to see how your memory is going uh, they say that uh, the disease actually strikes 10 to 20 years prior to symptoms so we are trying to eradicate that, find out what's causing it, and hopefully someday with the clinical drug trials come up with a cure. So please see us at the resource table. We have many handouts for you. Thank you so much. I see Sabrina for putting this together. Rosie, I'm a community organizer with a faith-based group called Faith in Indiana, and we focus on social justice issues here in the city. The main focus this year for me is reducing gun violence and mass incarceration. Um, I received my degree from um, IUPUI, and I love what I do, and to me, I think it's great to be here um, in the field and do the work that I'm doing because social workers are more than just working with children. We do so much work more than that. Um, so I, I, I'm glad to be here today. So first we're gonna start off with Dr. Christian Doss, right here to my right. Um, Dr. Christian Doss is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who works, okay, sorry, who works every day to serve the under, under, underserved. She received her medical degree from Morehouse School of Medicine and she completed her residency at Indiana University School of Medicine. She's trained in general pediatrics, general psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry at Indiana University. She is currently the regional psychiatry director of the Wexford Health of Indiana partnership with Indiana Department of Corrections. Give it up for Dr. Kristen Ross. Um, next we have 
Joseph Smedley? Who's Joseph Smedley? Right here, Joseph Smedley. You guys, okay, now listen. I don't have a picture, so please raise your hands so I can give you an idea of who you are. Um, Dr. Joseph Smedley brings over 20 years of professional experience to Hope Haven. He has served as a chair of the Department of Psychology and Director of the Health Education and Counseling Center at Martin. He obtained his bachelor's in psychology from Roosevelt University in Chicago and his master's and PhD in clinical psychology from Howard University. Welcome. Um, we have Mr. Ronald Rice, raise your hand, thank you. Mr. Ronald Rice is a local author who currently resides in Fishers, Indiana. He also has experiences as a high-ranking leader in the Indiana criminal justice system from, for 31 years. Ron is a retired warden from the Indiana Department of Corrections to Newcastle Correctional Facility, where he ended his tenure in 2006. Welcome. Um, right here, my fabulous girl, Renee Allen. Renee Allen has resided on the far east side of town for almost 20 years. East side. She currently works as a contractor for the state of Indiana and has a master's in public affairs with a concentration in criminal justice. Renee is the mother of three young men, evangelists, and a community leader. Over the past nine years, Renee has volunteered in her community by going outside of the four walls of the church to meet those who are hurting, lost, and broken, to show love in an unconditional way. Her passion to the community is to listen to their voice and then be a good voice. And she's also running for city council um, in District 14. So. Right, for Renee. And then... Okay, thank you. Mr. Tony Jackson's bio is on my computer, but I had the love and pleasure of talking to him this morning. You're from Dallas, Texas? Yes, Mr. Tony is from Dallas, Texas and just recently moved up to Indianapolis within the last three years. And during that time, he um, had some space and time to actually um, get some, we can say, develop self-help skills. He was working on personal development and began writing a book. Um, and he also had experience with addiction. He's a, a peer recovery coach. It was super important for him to be on this panel to me because a lived experience is extremely important with giving information to individuals who are out in the community. Clinical perspective is key, and peers' perspective is just as equally important so people can know what it was like to go through the journey of that experience. So welcome, Mr. Tony Jackson with Tony Restore. Thanks. Welcome everybody. So um, my first question that I'm going to lead with today is um, just asking you guys about maybe some of the stigma that we have in the black community around um, mental health and how that plays a role in the trauma that we've experienced like over the years. Not just current trauma, but generational trauma. I'm first speak. <laughs> um, my uh, experience with uh, seeing how black families uh, through history in terms of dealing with 
mental health issues. Uh, a lot of times there's a statement attached to it where we don't want to identify with a mental health issue. A lot of times it's because of pride or a cultural uh, habit that's been passed along the way where you've thought that we can deal with it on our own. You don't really need professional help. A lot of times, families that are not used to dealing with mental health say, Oh, I think they're microphone. Is the microphone? No. Is it shitty to be on? Hello. Thank you. Families, instead of uh, going to seek medical help, will say, oh, he's got the blues, or she's got the blues, and uh, they'll get over it. But over time, they don't, and as a result of that, uh, families, people don't get the treatment that they need in order to recover and get back into the mainstream. It's kind of a, it's kind of a old cultural habit that's lasted throughout the years. But lately, or here recently, more and more people are being educated and informed about it, and people are now finding out that it's not shameful or being weak to say, I need help. And uh, I think it's a matter of educational process. And I'll, I'll pass back along to that on some of the other panels. Yes, I'd just like to say that um, stigma has also contributes to kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that it's important for people to understand that help is available, that people can get help through not only medication, but psychotherapy, and people can do better, regardless of whether they're suffering from depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, any other challenges. And so what happens is, if you know, if any of you know of individuals who are experiencing challenges, that are somewhat reticent, somewhat, somewhat shy about wanting to seek services, you would be doing them a favor if you would engage them and have a conversation with them and ensure them that about one out of every five people in the United States have some kind of a diagnosable and treatable disorder. Yet they are firepersons, psychologists, they are salesmen, truck drivers, and they go about their lives every day doing what they need to do. They are comedians, they are professionals, they are professional basketball players, football players, movie stars, and they're in function. And so it's important that if you know of anybody that has some kind of challenge and is kind of concerned or shy 
about getting help, that you encourage them and let them know that thousands of people have had issues, have had challenges, and that they should not feel, uh, you know, shy about trying to trying to get help because help is available. So what happens is that people have the, the stigma causes people to stay home and not seek services, and then therefore they get worse because they're not receiving treatment. So if you would encourage people that you may know that they, they can get help and they can get better, I think that would be helpful. Thanks. Um, I'm gonna go question is, for me, you know, I've dealt with depression, and it took me a while to actually go seek help. And when I was going to go seek help, it took me even longer time to actually find people of color in like therapy, clinicians, and in these fields. And as I see this panel up here, it's great to see like we have like a doctor in the house. How important do you think it is to have people of color um, in your roles in the community? <laughs> I, well, I mean, I think, it, of course, it's very important, right? I mean, we have to be able to provide culturally competent care, okay? So, um, you know, um, it, I generally share a story. Uh, I was working with some kids, and the uh, psychologist was like, you know, Dr. Dawes, I'm real concerned. This kid is psychotic. He's acting very peculiar, he's just being really weird, you know, I want you to go see him, I think he's hearing things and seeing things, and I'm like, okay. Um, so I go talk to this kid, I'm like, hey, what's going on, and um, whatnot, and he said, you know, I was pouring out some water, just being a goof, and, and I said, this is rest in peace for all my homies in the streets, and this psychologist thought that this kid was talking to his dead friends who had died and passed away. And I'm just like, stop it, you know? Um, so I think part of providing culturally competent care is you kind of have to get the person, you have to understand the family, you have to understand a lot of the things that the culture made to, you know, pour out some sort of liquid in remembrance of their friends doesn't necessarily equate to being psychotic. Right? So if you come in from this frame or this mindset that um, this person is aggressive or ill or you know intimidating and, 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 and all of these, if you come with that framework, the care that you provide is just going to be very different. So, um, and it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to be an African American to understand the African American experience, but it does mean that you need to be trained in a culturally competent manner. Um, so I think, you know, the one piece of mental health is you have to find someone who you can work with, right? I'm, I'm a child psychiatrist, I'm African-American, I may not be the best fit for all African-Americans, right? Um, but you need to find a provider who you feel comfortable in talking to and working with and trusting and, and you understand the way that they practice. Um, yeah, that's good. Anyone else? I think it's very important what you just said. Uh, a lot of times, uh, black children don't really want to open up to uh, someone else. They want to make, open someone that they can relate to. Like 
and see what was going back and forth. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people wouldn't realize what he was talking about. You knew, you know, as a kids. I mean, when I was uh, brought up, I was taught not to cry. You know, uh, my dad. We never talked about nothing. Everything was just kept a secret. And I had talked to my dad about it and asked him why. He said because his dad had talked to him. So it's like this generation passed down, passed down, passed down. We don't use the tools that we have today. And we have to learn how to use the tools. The family has to get out and go to uh, organizations like this where they can get the tools, use the tools that we can pass down to our kids. And that's the problem today. We, we just, we're not using the tools that we have. Uh, I'll make a quick comment. I, uh, I retired from the Department of Correction after 31 years. It's the last seven years of my uh, career. I was the warden of the Newcastle Correctional Facility, which is, is a facility that was designed, designed to house the most acute mentally ill in our state prison system. And I had the honor, uh, Governor O'Bannon appointed me the warden, I had the honor of opening, opening that prison. And I learned quite a bit about mental health care through the operation of our mental health unit. It held about 50 beds, again, it's for the most acute mentally ill. One of the things that I learned and I saw repeatedly, um, inmates that were on medication, most of them were, over a period of time, when they relapsed, we found out it was because they stopped taking the medication. That's something that happens, I'm sure everybody up here can attest to that. That's something that happens with patients and offenders that have mental health problems over time. They had the most uncanny ways of not taking the medicine. They could hide it in their mouths up under their tongues or one of their private areas. It, it was a, a continual problem. And so through my experience, I've seen where patients or offenders might do well for a while, then they relapse because they stopped taking their medicine, their medication. So a uh, continuation of medication for stability is very important. That is an issue that I've seen. Uh, going back to your question, I, uh, I'm glad that we're in a stage of our lives now where we have more clinicians and more black doctors standing up as psychiatrists and psychologists. Because I remember going to see a psychiatrist at the age of 13 because I had been raped. And I remember being in the office, the woman was white. And I didn't want to open up. So I think, when to answer your question, I was thinking, I remember thinking, like, I don't want to talk to you. That's what I'm saying in my mind. So I began to tell her what I thought she wanted to hear. And as we go back, as you said, it's culturally because you could not identify with what I was going through and what I was going through at home. And then you want to put a crayon and a coloring book in front of me and I was like okay so why am I sitting up here wasting my time I'm, you know each week I would have to go back and I'm sitting up here like okay lady like why are we sitting up here 
And now that I'm older and I got through my healing process, go back to what you're saying, I didn't identify with her because she she was white. Nothing against her, but I'm black. You don't understand the struggles that we are going through in our black community. And so I think we're at a time now where over the years, like I used to work for a mental health facility, and more and more black clinicians and more and more black doctors are really standing up. And I applaud everyone for going out there because we as a black community need to know that we have doctors out here that can actually relate to us culturally. So I say let's push this so that it can be actually known. And it's not, and I think another reason to that too is we, we go back to the black families, we want to deal with our own issues our own way. And so back in the day, back into our ancestors, we go back to the shame. No. We don't tell people that we got an issue. You know, it's embarrassing to say that you have an issue, but you really do need the help. I mean, it's one thing I love God, I'm all for God, and we're going to pray, and we're going to fast, and we're going to deliver. But at the same time, that's the reason why God has put people on earth like you guys, like the clinicians and the psychologists, to, to help them. That's the reason why we have a brain. So. I, I applaud everybody who's really standing up here and trying to say, hey, we are here. We actually need the help. And keep, you know, like you said, send the people. Send them. It's nothing wrong to sit up here and say, I need help. It's nothing wrong. We say we need prayer. We also need help in that prayer as well. Thanks. Um, you guys brought up a good question. Um, good comment actually about medication and the need for medication. Um, we all know that like children are overly medicated for um, mental health issues such as ADD and ADHD. Um, in your practice and in the field that you're doing, is there anything that we bring to the table around um, holistic approaches to dealing with mental health um, issues in our community that we even talk about um, or that we advocate for? <laughs> um, absolutely. So, again, I am the psychiatrist, right? But I really see myself as just another member on the team. We, I cannot do my work without everyone else on the team, right? And that's when we do our best work is when we work together. So, um, you know, I don't really even, in the teams that I work with, I really am there to just foster the communication and to collaborate, but I never see myself as, you know, the person running the show. We are a team and we run the show together. So with that being said, um, you know, medications are a tool, right? Um, and again, this is why I say not all, you have to find a doctor that works with you and you guys are on the same uh, line, you know, the same plane, um, because really I'm a medication minimalist. Um, that's kind of how I um, practice. I think that a lot of the things that I see kids come in with um, really do stem from the environment they're in, um, the stressors that are on the family, um, the academic piece, poverty, um, all of these things. It's, it's, it's really a 
biological but social um, and then mental health model that I use personally. Um, so the first time that someone sees me, absolutely, if they're psychotic, we are going to treat them, we're going to hospitalize them, we're going to do what we need to do. If they're struggling with ADHD, first line is, you know, stimulant medication. So we're going to do those things, but at the same time, we're going to sit down and have a conversation. Mom, what's going on? You know, because a lot of times if you are trying to pay the bills, keep the lights on, keep food on the table, keep running back and forth to the school, then you're on probation, so now you gotta go drug test and do all this, and you're a single mom with five kids, and, and Johnny keeps sitting up and running down and going everywhere else. You know, it's just like, hey doc, fix this. Okay, well, let's stop, mom. What's going on with you? And that's when the tears get to flow in and the whole story comes out, so then I can connect them with a peer support specialist, I can connect them with social work. Let's get some structure in the home, let's get some support, some, some, some resources. And then you bring Johnny back a month or two later and he says, well, he's really gotten better. I don't know what happened. Well, I know what happened, you know? We, we kind of got to the root of some of these other things. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, medications have a role, they are a tool, um, they are frequently needed, but I really put the majority of the work on all the other pieces going on. What else is going on? There's a question back there. Yeah. Just hold on one second. She's going to bring in the mic because I can't. Probably once a week at um, at DOC, 
where this 12-year-old's coming in on six, seven, eight medications, half of which are antipsychotics, and the moment that I meet with this kid, you know, we're kind of talking and we're processing what's going on, and you know, they say my meds don't work. Well, of course the meds don't work if dad's incarcerated, mom's in prostitution, um, on opioids, and all the rest. I mean, the meds are not really, you know, so you can throw all the meds on this you want to, but again, really we need to be processing, you know, you see your mother, your brother shot, right? Like, if we don't do that, we may see this aggression and this acting out and all of the rest over here. So, again, I think it's really bigger. Medications are your piece, and medications are helpful. Um, but I think we also kind of need to look at the bigger picture and, and, and getting to some of this, the underlying theology. Yes, I was just going to piggyback on that. I think it's important that we, if, if you all have relatives or children, we have to, as patients, be cognizant. Uh, we have to be aggressive and assertive in talking with our physicians and psychologists and, and therapists. Because you're on medication, medication needs to be managed. And many times I've talked with parents who have said that their child is on medication. And when was the last time you talked with your physician or your PCP or your psychiatrist about six months ago? So we have to be aggressive and we have to be knowledgeable and be able to talk with our physicians about when we have, if there are side effects, if there are issues that come up around that. Making sure that we go to our, our, our physicians and say, if your parent, ask the parent, I mean, ask the physician to tell you about the medication. Are there side effects? If they are, what are they? And then make sure that the physician is, is seeing the child on a regular basis. Don't assume because they're on medication that they should stay on that medication at the same dosage. Forever. So we have to take a role, we have to be assertive and take a role in our own treatment. Don't assume that those of us who are professionals make us stay on top. Ask us questions, be sure that uh, you understand what your treatment question is about. I just have a quick question. Uh, I just wanted to know if that panelist could reflect a bit on the stigma attached in the minority communities with actually taking medication is that as a clinician, I run across minority clients who, and they may even know that they do need medication as a piece of their wellness program, but because of the stigma that's been attached to, oh, well, you know, you don't need that, or you know, we don't do those kinds of things, or uh, that should, those medications don't really work. Could you maybe? Debunk some of that, or, or actually talk about how you debunk some of that in your own practices with your clients. Yeah, I'll pass it to the physician as well. But what I wanted to, I think a good way to do that again is talk about, in this case, to the student. If any of us breaks a leg, or has a heart problem, or has arthritis, we don't have any problem going to a physician about that issue. And if you prescribe medication, you take it. So I think one of, that's something else that we can do 
and encouraging our friends and relatives and other individuals who happen to be in a situation where they're prescribed medication and are registered about taking it, saying that you're being treated because you have a psychological challenge, you have a mental health challenge, and this medication is not perfect, but it has known to help people, thousands of people from time to time, get back into a position where they can have a conversation and so forth. So I think it's the way we talk to people about the meds that we, it's, as other parts of the uh, physical medicine, you take medicine for uh, migraines, you take medicine for depression. So I think that's one way that you can help to help them realize that it's okay to take meds. And, as I said earlier, make sure that you follow up. Um, I'm not a clinician, but I've, I've had a lot of experience dealing with mental health issues through my work, through my past entire work. But you're talking about, in terms of debunking some of those myths, some of the research that I've done here recently, things that I've found too that would address tearing down the barriers to that type of attitude, especially in the black population, is again education about mental disorders and the treatment process. Suggestions for overcoming these barriers include public education campaigns, educational presentation in community venues, and open information sessions and mental health clinics. Uh, educating our people. When the word gets out, people see the results of information, then people tend to drop their fears and follow up on serious problems in that regard. I just wanted to um, I have a question from the audience. Um, since we're talking about medication, they wanted to know when is there a time frame when medication should be reviewed? That is a very um, that that um, really depends on the clinical indication. So um, you know when was the medication started? What was the medication for? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, I can only speak to what I do in my practice, um, but generally if I start someone on medication, I'm going to see them back within 30 days. Um, once we get them to a place where they're pretty stable, it's generally, you know, two to three months, depending on, on what we're working with. I also cover Newcastle Psychiatric right now, and I see the guys who are struggling with more, more severe mental illness, schizophrenia, those sorts of things. I see them every 30 days. Um, so it just really depends on the degree of the symptoms. Are they mild, moderate, severe? And that'll determine your treatment plan. So you really need to work on that with your physician. Coming back to the question over here, um, the way that I generally figure, you know, um, try to enhance engagement and treatment, especially when it comes to medications, is to identify the patient's goals, right? Like, why are you here? Why, why do you want to work with me? What, what did you come for? Or, you know, if you're in an emergency department setting or something like that, 
you know, you know, what can I help you with? And sometimes even when patients are acutely psychotic, they can say, Doc, I just want to sleep. Okay, well, we know that a lot of these antipsychotics can be sedating too, so I said, okay, hey, this medication, you can get some rest, you can get some sleep, get your thoughts together. Um, if they come into you and they're talking about depression and anxiety or, or whatever it is, you know, I want a better relationship with my wife. Well, that's where I start. Okay, well, this medication can help with the thoughts and feelings and the irritability that you're struggling with, and that may help improve the relationship with your wife. So I kind of tie it back into that. And then, to what you said, the physical health um, parity piece. You know, if you have diabetes, you take your medications every day, so why are you questioning this? I'm pretty direct with my patients, so sometimes that approach can work with some and not with others, but that's my role. Yeah. Okay, we got two more um, okay. questions. Um, so this question is important to me as a faith-based counselor and um, also part of the African-American community. Um, I just would like to know or get feedback from the panel regarding the church's role in understanding mental health and substance use. Um, I've talked to many um, lay and um, uh, faith-based organizations as far as um, the disparity when, when individuals come to the church to seek support or healing or guidance. And there's just a breakdown in um, the church having the correct information to give them. So I know the African, I know the church is a big part of the African American community. So how important is it for churches to become recovery focused? Yes, I've been fortunate to have been asked to speak at a number of churches. And I think one of the ways that churches, regardless of the African-American community or not, is to invite us in. There's a church uh, not too far from here that the pastor's daughter had been misdiagnosed and she had been diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia many years ago. And she really had bipolar disorder. And she went into a severe depression and she committed suicide. The pastor, from that point on, made it a point in Mental Health Month to make sure that he had a clinician come in, someone to come in and talk to the uh, church about mental health and mental disorders. I happened to get the nod because one of the people who was a member of the church uh, knew me. And I come every year, I think it's in February or March, and talk with them about mental health disorders, suicide prevention, and so forth. And I think churches are doing this more and more. I, don't, I think, as a matter of fact, if you, you won't find pastors resisting. If any of them, if you want to talk with your pastor and ask him or her to, if you could bring in people to deal with issues of mental health and the importance of, of seeking uh, mental health services if necessary. And in general health and well-being as well with, with regards to mental health. For example, we have many elderly people uh, in the churches and it's important, one of the things that we have issues with dementia, and we have Alzheimer's uh, individuals represented here. One of the things that's important for people, one of the things that churches can do is get the newest information out about the latest research 
and that is that the older we get, the more active we should continue to become. We should work out, we should go to gyms, we can walk around the block, we, can, we should watch our health. So mental health is, as Dr. says, it's not just mental, it's physical and mental. We're, we're total human beings. So we need to be, watch our diet, sleep. One of the things, most of the most recent research articles I've, I've heard is that the proper amount of sleep is critical with keeping dementia pushed back as far as possible. There's some issues dealing with the, uh, the brain, essential nervous systems, that shows that the proper amount of sleep, so if you just get people to, to get the amount of sleep that they want, exercise, get out from underneath that TV, get out of that easy chair, get up, walk around the block, Elderly people should work, should uh, lift weights, and so forth. These are the kind of things that we need to get in front of our churches, and I, I'm, I believe that pastors are much more receptive to this kind of information. Can I add one more thing to that? Um, the church that I actually attend, we have a ministry called Overcomers Ministry. And that ministry, What's the name of your church for me? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I go to New Beginnings Fellowship Church out of 21st and German Church Road where Pastor James Anthony Jackson um, is the pastor. And so one of our um, ministries is called the Overcomers Ministry. And what this particular ministry does, it is a ministry that's directed towards any type of addiction. Like, I, I forget the name of the book because I helped them start the ministry up in the beginning. But they have like a book that they actually go by. And one of the facilitators, he was going to school to be like a um, mental health provider or some sort. He, he actually used to teach at Arlington Heights, who was my teacher. Um, and so they, the churches, well, I would speak for my church, is starting to move towards you know, getting the help, because I do think, you know, you're right, you know, we come to church, and, you know, it's one thing to give people hope, but there's people out here that needs healing, and even out of my own pastor's mouth, that's something that, even in his spiritual gift, that's what he's starting to see, like, my people need healing. Just last Saturday, he brought, I don't know where the lady was from, but her name was Dr. Denise Broggs, and he opened it up for the church to come in. Like, she, he's went to her. So he brought her in to talk to his congregation. And again, it was another form of healing to be able to provide, for, you know, to, to, to the community and to the church. So I think it's something that the churches are moving toward. And it's, you know, moving that shame curtain off and say, hey, it's one thing to give us hope, but people actually out here that is needing help. And I know with this particular ministry, they meet every Wednesday, rain, sleet, or snow, because guess what? During the holidays, guess That's when drugs and alcohol is more on the high, you know, around the holidays. So they're, they're, they're doing, you know, 24-7, no matter what. And, and if anything, and from what I know about our pastoral uh, staff, if it's outside of the realm of what they are used to dealing with, 
they refer them out to another resource because this is an area that they're unable to deal to deal with. And what they don't know, they do try to find find it. Mm -hmm. We have another audience question. Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Martha Gibbons, and I am Ross Gibbons' mother who uh, died of a drug overdose. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to hear about the work that you're doing in therapy. Certainly, medication therapy has been a great tool for those of us who have been able to, to, to have access to that tool. But if you could speak just a little, we, we, one of the things that we find uh, in, the, in the rock meetings when young people and young adults come together and they begin to share and to talk about their lives, we know that there is a lot of self-medicating going on. Where, to the point, where I believe it contributes to lowering, lowering our animosities and, and we act out, we're able to take each other's lives, we kill each other, and so African-American, young African-Americans are dying with overdoses and self-medicating. Certainly this takes us back to the mental health problem that we face. Could you speak to us and help us to understand what goes on in the minds of many of these young people who have the need and feel that they must self-medicate and the, 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 the short and the long-term effect of that. Well, I'll take a shot at something. Um, having, having worked in the criminal justice system, uh, I dealt with a lot of parolees uh, and probationers that some of them what they call dual diagnosis, mental um, problems, and drug abuse. Um, a lot of it comes through peer pressure that I saw. Uh, kids wanting to emulate their buddies, getting engaged, trying to, to belong to something. Then they get caught up in drug usage, peer pressure. Uh, that is a very strong influence. And I dealt with that a lot. Then a lot of it is uh, sometimes family orientation. I've seen a lot of that too. And once they get caught up, you're in a drug addiction, you got a problem. And you need treatment. And if there's no diagnosis, it's, this makes it all more complicated. I would just say that, you know, I, I don't think anyone of us or anyone wants to be in pain, right? So no one wants to have to deal with the pain of um, psychological distress, right? Um, I work with children and women and, and adult male offenders who have been maltreated, victimized, assaulted, all of these sorts of things. So when they try to go to sleep, they 
can't even sleep without revisiting that trauma. So if I can take a hit of this, uh, inject that, you know, and it takes that pain away, you know, then that's what I'm gonna go to. And then after a while, it just becomes physically addicting. Like I cannot wake up in the morning and function without a shot of liquor or without, you know, some sort of opioid or else I'll get physically ill. So I think that it, it's, 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 I think self-medication comes from seeking relief, seeking an escape, seeking a way to deal with that hurt, that trauma, that whatever, or, or too physical, right? You know, I was in a car accident and now I got on opiates and I don't want this pain. So I'm gonna take one, and if one is good, then 10 is better, so I'm gonna take more. And now every morning I have to take 10 and 20. So so I think that's where it starts, and it's, and it's the, the problem, and while I see it that way, I think the hardest part is trying to have patients understand that anxiety does exist for a reason. Right? So some level of anxiety is okay. If you feel some sort of way, you know, back in, let's say when we were cave people, okay, and you saw a bear coming, you needed to have some anxiety to either fight or flee, right? So some anxiety, if you're feeling some sort of way or some unease about something, maybe you need to work through something. But right now it's just this instant gratification, and that's the part that's, that I find um, difficult to get patients to engage in, right? So yes, we had this trauma, yes, we had this stressor, yes, you broke and fractured bones in that motor, um, in that vehicle accident, but what if we do physical therapy instead of all these opiates? Well, physical therapy takes six to eight weeks. I don't wanna do that, doc. I wanna just give you the pills so I can go home, right? Or you had that trauma, so let's do some psychotherapy. Well, that's gonna take too long. So I think it's really trying to break the cycle of instant gratification. I do want people to feel. I get referrals from clinicians and DOC all the time, this person's crying. Okay, right? I mean, sometimes we do need to feel. You talk to the person, well, my mom just died. Okay, well, crying is normal. I want you to feel that. Because if I just cover that up, you don't heal appropriately. Right? So, but I think sometimes for me, that's the challenge, is getting patients to understand this is a process, it's not gonna be a quick fix. Yeah, I, I was thinking that when you spoke on it, just deal with peer pressure. You never know what's going on behind closed doors. Someone might be getting raped, and then they just wanna take some medication to get rid of the pain. Somebody's parents might be using drugs, and that's what they saw, so they think that's right. You, you, you never know what's going on in person just like we said, everybody is hiding stuff. We don't know how to speak. We don't teach our children to speak up about these. Everything is closed. I have um, an audience that wants to make a comment and then um, we're gonna wrap up because I have one more question for the, the panel discussion and then we're gonna wrap up. Hello everyone, my name is Lou Smith. I'm currently a psychology student here at Martin University and uh, I just want to commend and comment on how you, all the therapists there, and how you brought it out, uh, comparing um, whether somebody has a demon or if they need help. And I kind of felt in the cracks at 16 years old, um, where it's, uh, 
it's not always about you got some type of spirit, but that you were able to bring it out here and say, okay, listen, you know, perhaps this person's got something going on uh, that needs some type of uh, mental health, you know, and the stories with the therapist is not, like I said, coming up in my area, I was told that I had a demon. And I'm like so glad, so glad that you guys have come and shone the light, um, that it's not always about that. Now we need pastors who are willing to say, okay, come in, you know, help our people, uh, don't be afraid, you know, share the knowledge. And I just want to say I am so grateful for this. God bless you all. So my final question is to each um, of the panelists to kind of give the audience um, of you maybe one or two minutes of like why you stepped into the role that you're doing and um, what's one of the significant um, things about your role that you enjoy? Um, <clears throat> many years ago when I was a teenager, my uh, father uh, had succumbed to dementia. And I didn't know what was going on. I, I was a voracious reader, had to read psychology and philosophy and that kind of thing. And he uh, eventually had to be hospitalized. And I remember going to see him uh, a few weeks after he'd been in the hospital. And we, he, I walked in and he smiled and we sat and chatted for a while. And then he looked at me in the night and he said, now who are you? And I was, I thought he was kidding. And I suddenly realized that he didn't know who his 20-year-old son was. And I was devastated. And so that and a few other things had me to really decide, I want to get into really understand what this mental health issue is all about. And I found that I had a gift of listening. I found that when I talked with people, I would uh, be in different various jobs and people would spill their guts to me. And I've decided, well, if people are gonna do that and I'm gonna try to give them some information, I better go to school <laughs> and learn how to give them the right information. So that's a little bit about how I saw I think for me, working at a mental health facility for those who were suffering from, you know, from pain, um, everyday pain, and then just dealing with my mom and having a cousin who died from it, and then from a spiritual standpoint, going out into the streets to see what um, the community was really dealing with. And, you know, when you talk about the drugs and the alcoholism and the things that's going on, and then... You know, you hearing the mothers that saying that they can't find their child because they're, you know, they're suffering from some type of mental health illness. You know, when you have to go to work every day, the woman's like, "Well, he just stopped taking his medication." 
you know, those things start to take effect on you a little bit and you're like, okay, so what more can I do? So then when I got involved with the organization that currently, that Rosie currently works for some years ago, and you know, when they start closing up the Central State Hospital, right, and they start locking all the mental health patients up, no, they don't belong in jail. They don't deserve to do time. They they need help. So why are we sitting with them? Why are we sitting, you know, why are we locking them up? And so for me, out of that, that's when we start, you know, came up with the campaign slogan, jobs, not jail. You know, let's address the mental health issues and instead of putting, you know, the mentally ill in, in jail, because even we all know, even with the homelessness. If them, half of them are not homeless because they want to be. Some of them are homeless because, guess what? They have some type of mental health issue. So anything that I can move our city to, you know, to pay attention to those these types of issues, bringing mental health awareness to our black community, I'm all for it. I mean, I'd rather take the shame off and deal with the mentally health, mentally ill patients. I'd rather help a mother you know, keep her child from crying. I mean, because I'm a mother of three boys, you know, I think it, it could be me. So I put myself in those shoes. So anything that I can do to help move a lot that, that's gonna protect us and continue to educate our black clinicians to get more students to step up to address these issues, I'm all for it. That's the reason why I decided to get into this work. You don't know it, but you took my thought away from me. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. My, my concern, I think, what still is very, stands out significantly in my mind. Back in 1987, I opened up a small prison on the grounds of Central State Hospital. And it was functioning very well. At the time, we had a governor who was being influenced to close down mental health, major mental health institutions. As a result of that, Central State Hospital got closed. What happened after that? As he disindicated, inmates started going to prisons. He closed down the big mental health institutions with the promise that there would be more community help places. They didn't follow that up. So what happened? The jails and the prisons are getting inmates, uh, people with mental health problems that commit crimes. Something needs to be done in the way of the community to press the county and the state to go back to this thought about opening up more community mental health organizations. Because you can't put them all in prison. It's wrong. You know, when you walk a path of darkness, Fifteen years I was uh, strung out on crack cocaine, and um, I don't wish crack cocaine on nobody. Uh, 
crack cocaine sign. The devil just got you trapped and you cannot get him off your back. I mean, it, it had me, well, I was, I couldn't function. I did stuff that was unpleasing. I stole from my parents. I, I took stuff from people. And I just don't, I don't wish crack on my worst enemy because it, it can turn your, I mean, I lost relationship with my parents, my children, and I, I lost self-respect for myself. And I just, I don't want nobody else to go down that road. Or if you get down that road, I can understand where you come from. Because a lot of people say, I know what you feel, but you don't know what you feel unless you've been in those shoes. And, and, I, and I've been in those shoes because it, it, it told my life up. I lost 20 years of my life in and out of prison, strung out on my program. And I, I come from a good family. Uh, I was the only child growing up, but I got around growing people. I started selling drugs, and down became my best customer. So I know how that is. That's why I took the, the uh, position as to be a recovery coach. Because it's very important to me. You know, addiction is, is killing a lot of young people. And some people never, they never get it. How bad you want to get it, they still won't get it. And I have some friends that still use drugs. They've been using drugs like 25, 30 years. And they see my life, but they, they just don't want to play. But it's very important that I, I try to keep everybody in that key, so that's why I'm doing it. So I think for me, um, it started at a pretty young age. My uh, mom is a social worker by training, and uh, my dad was in public government as well. And um, you know, on school breaks and things like that, my, my grandparents lived right next door to us. So when there wasn't school. I was over at my grandparents house. My grandfather was older and he had diabetes. And, um, you know, he would have these aches and complaints and all these sorts of things. And I said, well, granddaddy, I'll be your doctor. I'm like four or five. I'm just talking, right? So then he said, you know, I know you will. I know you will. And we kept going. So then over the years, he would just say, well, you'll be my doctor. You'll take care of me. So then it's just almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So by the time I get to college, I'm like, well, I'm going to be a doctor, like, duh. Um, so then I just started going down that path, and you start, you know, this is this is really for me, as you start kind of going through that. So then I get to medical school at Morehouse, and I'm like, well, what kind of doctor am I going to be? So I saw the OBs and the um, gynecologists, and I was like, those women are bad. Like, I want to be them. So then I got in the operating room, um, and... I was like, it's too hot. <laughs> so, couldn't do that. And the babies came whenever they wanted to come. I've got three children on my own. I cannot be waking up in the morning at five o'clock to deliver this baby. So I said, okay, well, that's not for me. But I loved kids. So then I did pediatrics and I said, wow, you know, working with kids. I mean, there's something about working with a child. Like, it's just this renewed sense of humanity. Like, everything's okay, there's hope in the world. So I enjoyed working with children, but then I loved psychiatry. So I found out that, you know, um, for residency, which is after you complete medical school, you have to go to residency, and there were eight programs in the entire country where you could be both a pediatrician and a psychiatrist. 
And I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. So then I just, you know, um, you know, you'll have thousands of people apply to these positions, and there's like 18 or 16 positions in the whole country. So I said, okay, fine. So just by the grace of God, right, um, I ended up matching to the one place that I um, selected, and that was at IU. So I got the chance to come back home to practice medicine, to do both peds and psychiatry, and then. Along the whole path, I think I was just kind of always raised to, um, first off, fight, right, to be a strong woman, to be an advocate. So I had to turn that, um, probably that own defiance in myself into something um, positive to help others. So becoming an advocate for other people. I saw my mom doing that all the time, and I was like, I want to do that too. so, so just learning to like serve for folks who are underserved, people who don't have their own voice, people who are incarcerated, um, mostly because of poverty or substance use. Like, I want to fight for them. Um, people, children, right, um, who are out here struggling. Like, I want to fight for them. And then um, I was in medical school, and I'll shut up talking. But I was in medical school, and um, they at Wishford at the time they had this di- this. Um, flag on the chart where this person's a VIP. And I just, it didn't fit with me. Like, oh, well, that's the CEO's daughter or whatever. Okay, fine. But this one's a VIP too, right? So why does this one get all this care and this one doesn't? And it's stuff like that that keeps me in this game, right? So it's stuff like that that keeps me going. So with all that being said, that's kind of why I do what I do. the panelists for um, speaking with us today and advocating and giving us well, I'm sorry. I just got a quick statement. Okay. I'm a graduate of Martin University from two, uh, 1995 and Dr. Smith was one of my professors and I took up counseling psychology and I remember and I remember in my last year of graduation, I don't know if you remember this, Dr. Smedley, you made an announcement to us and you said, before you approve us to pass, we all had to get a mental health assessment in the class in counseling psychology. And I remember going to you and saying, I don't have no money, I don't have nothing. You said, go to the theological seminary. They have a slight scale fee. And at that time, I just thought I was going to Dr. Smedley told me to go. But I ended up being a, a patient of them for six months to deal with my own childhood trauma. And so I want to tell you that that is the best day in my career as a social worker that has happened to me. in order to sit at the feet of my clients and be a good listener like you. So I want to tell you that. Thank you so much for that. Well, I want to thank everybody and our panelists for joining us today and spreading awareness around mental health issues and drug addiction that's important in the black community. I hope you all got a lot out of that, and thank you so much.